Welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Seth from Waste Mailing List. Seth is a man behind Waste Mailing List. He joins us from his home in Sydney. Welcome to the show, Seth. Ben, it is a pleasure to be here. Uh, like I told you off mic there a couple of minutes ago, I feel very underqualified to be here. Well, the funny thing is I've been waiting to do this for so long. And I've kept putting you off a couple of times now, so I apologize for that. That's just my <laughs> insane schedule as it exists right now. You grew up in Canada. How did you end up in a place like Sydney? Yeah, so I've got a couple of lovely sisters who have had various international experiences in boarding schools and internships and jobs abroad in other parts of Canada. And I've just seen them do all these interesting things abroad. And I had never left the island of Vancouver Island for pretty much the first 20 years of my life, save the occasional trip, you know? And I was just thinking to myself, okay, I'm done, I'm graduated, I've got an undergrad degree. I know I wanna do more, but I wanna go somewhere else to do it. And so I was thinking, okay, where's as far away from British Columbia as I could get? And so I picked quite literally the opposite hemisphere uh, and landed on Australia because the accreditation that I needed to be able to return to Canada is reciprocal between Australia and Canada. So worked out great. I'm trying to be a permanent resident as we speak. Wow. Now, with British Columbia, like mm. I think a lot of Australians say that, you know, it's the kind of place where they would love to live. What are the best and worst things about British Columbia? Oh, uh, look, between Australians and uh, Canadians, particularly West Coast Canadians, I think the culture and the temperament of the people is very similar. Like there really wasn't much of a culture shock coming over here, except for the fact that pokies are in bars and hotels. That was a real surprise to me because that <laughs> is not legal in Canada or at least B.C., uh, the thing that Australians will have to contend with is the weather. Now, kind of mis misnomer here is that it's not cold per se in British Columbia. It's just wet all the time. So, you know, like you and I are dealing with in Sydney today and for what sounds like the next 15 days, just be prepared for that for about 300 days out of the year. So very similar to a place like Seattle, I suppose, then? Absolutely. That's only a few kilometers south of us, really. So yeah, somebody's been watching Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> not, uh, God forbid. Um, maybe, maybe Northern Exposure, but yeah, not Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what are your observations uh, of Sydney as a literary city? As a literary city? Oh, that's interesting. Look, you've got a lot more bookstores, I'll tell you that relative to where I came from, which is Victoria, Vancouver Island, but we're also comparing a city of, what's Sydney, 6 million versus mm. 300,000. So that's probably something to keep in mind there. In terms of the literary culture, though, I guess this sort of leads into why I'm in the social media spaces, you know, Bookstagram and Booktube and whatnot in the first place, is... I don't actually have a lot of people in my personal life who I'm close with who read to the degree that I do. And so I've actually been at a bit of a loss for people to engage with 
in real life to talk to about the things that I'm reading. And so as a result, I reached out into social media and that's what I found is kind of my community of people. So that's uh, my backwards way of answering and saying, I'm not entirely sure what to make of the community in Sydney, but I do love the bookstores you've got, if nothing else. Well, we are meeting shortly at a bookshop in Sydney, one of the best bookshops in the country. Um, you're here. But I find as well, I agree with you on that, that the I think the, the book culture in Sydney has a little bit to develop and hopefully uh, you will be one of the people who develop, you know, that culture in some way here. Yeah, look, I, I, I've had this idea in my head because there's quite a few people within this you know, I'm not a big fan of the portmanteau bookstagram, but, you know, regardless of what I think of the term, the people on there are absolutely fantastic. And there's quite a few of us who are from Sydney. So I've kind of had this idea in my head of trying to get together sort of a group of the Sydney readers for some sort of social event, but, you know, still gestating what that might look like. Yeah, I think we should definitely do it. I think Sydney needs it. And, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of people around in Sydney and I think we should get them together. Sydney and Melbourne book communities are, are pretty strong, but I think they just need a bit of organisation. Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, you've lived here for a little while yourself now. You would know that the suburbs and the various parts of the city are quite insular. Um, I work in Bondi and the people who live in Bondi generally don't leave Bondi. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, I guess, breaking those geographical and subcultural divides between people. But yeah. I digress. Exactly. We connected through to waste mailing list, obviously, mm-hmm. and your love of Pinchon and things like that. How did you get started with waste and, you know, and moving on to your now new YouTube channel? Well, waste, this is actually sort of like a cute story that probably does not ever need to be shared in a um, public space, but there was a very brief period of time for I think about three, four days there, right after I started my Instagram account, where the name was not Waste Mailing List, it was Dr. Book Daddy. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not happy about it either. Uh, essentially, what it was, was I said to my, uh, my girlfriend, I was like, I'm going to make a book Instagram. She's like, that sounds terrible. And I said, yeah, and I need a name for it. She's like, Dr. Book Daddy. And I was like, that's the best you have? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, all right. So that's what it was for like three days. And I was like, I can't, I can't have this be my presence online. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, I know I love pension. Um, and I was just, I've always been fascinated with the idea and the iconography behind Tristero and the waste symbol and the waste acronym. We await silent Tristero's empire. And it's just, it's a fantastic book. And I thought it would be a nice little Easter egg for other readers of Pinchon. And it would sort of telegraph from the get-go what to expect from me and the kind of books you can expect to come out of my feed. So yeah, it was really just kind of like, yeah, this sounds cute. And no one else has taken it anywhere. So I've managed to snag it on um, pretty much all platforms with the exception of Twitter, but that's because they've got character limits. So It's such a good like way to tell people about what you do because that symbol is so immediately recognizable as something Pinchonian and people like I know that it's a kind of symbol where I'm like if someone has that symbol or someone has that tattoo I'm like hello I'm coming to talk to you. (laughs) 
have considered it as a tattoo as well. I know it's not original in that sense. A few people have it now. Mm. Um, I'm more just trying to convince my better half not to hate it for the rest of her life. If I'm going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to focus on Pintran for a minute because I find that he's somebody who the people who are involved in him, like it's a small, diverse community, but I think we really, I don't know, there's something about us that, that we love the same kind of things. How did you get drawn into his work? Yeah, I, um, I talked about this a little bit when I was on the Chatting Lit podcast. We do a whole episode on Pinchon, and that's a good show as well, so worth listening to. Um, but essentially what happened was I was just sort of getting back into reading after my undergrad, where I'd spent a few years reading nothing because my life was just a constant slew of studying and textbook reading. And I was like, no, I don't want to do any of that in my free time. So as I was getting back into appreciating fiction, uh, I was mostly going to this one bookstore clerk in my city for recommendations. And I remember he gave me three books at the time, uh, Cosmopolis by Don DeLillo, Travels Through the Scriptorium by Paul Auster, and it was Crying of Love 49 by Pinchon. And that, I sat on it for a while. I didn't end up reading it for probably a good few months, but then I got around to it and I was just like, this is so strange and quirky and incredibly erudite in its prose. And there's just something about it. It's a guy who can mix highbrow and lowbrow so well without it feeling, uh, you know, maybe twee might be the right word I would go for, but um, I just, yeah, he, he really draws people in and the depth of his narratives and how serpentine and labyrinthian they are. There's just so much to explore outside of the book, the amount of deep cut references he makes, like there's, you could spend months just trying to parse every reference made in even the short novels like Lot 49 or Inherent Vice. There's just a ton for us to work with. And I think it just makes for a really devout cult following, so to speak. I know that I, I think the first time I read Pinchon, the, the thing was for me is that I had to get out, you know, an encyclopedia or get out, you know, or Google everything that I came across because there were so many things that I had no idea about. And it sends you off in so many amazing, like, other directions. And I think that's like the concept of Gateway Book on this podcast comes from that whole idea because you know Pinterest is someone who sends you in these different directions and then all of a sudden like you are delving into you know an Asta or a Delillo or somebody else or some Buena Von Braun or someone like that and you you're you go down these bizarre alleyways with Pinterest because he has so much in his work. It yeah he really he's truly tapped into the cultural consciousness of particular decades and times that he's playing around with. Um, you look at sort of the immediate post-war era and Gravity's Rainbow, you've got, I think it's the 60s for um, Inherent Vice, 70s and 80s for Vineland, you've got early 2000s for Bleeding Edge, like he really nuts out what was going on in this sort of collective headspace of a particular era. And I think that's an interesting way to approach fiction and a catalog of works as a whole if you examine his entire bibliography 
Well, you go back, like you, you can go back to the pretty much the 1700s and Pinchon has pretty much documented every century since then. If we ever get another Pinchon, and I'm not holding my breath, but if we ever do, I would love to see him cover something in the period space again, like Mason and Dixon, which mm. is a novel I'll probably be touching on later. Yeah, uh, I think that that novel is, it's, it, I think it's underappreciated. I think it's probably one of his two best books. And uh, it, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I think that the scope of that novel is just insane and what he covers and the way he covers it is, is just unprecedented in modern fiction. I think maybe the, uh, the historical pastiche, that language he uses in the book can alienate some people. Some people might find it gimmicky. Some people just might find it too difficult to parse. But I urge anyone who's maybe read the page, first page and been like, mm, no, not for me. Give it a little while, you'll sink into the rhythms of it quite quickly, and it'll become almost second nature to you as you're reading it. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons why it maybe doesn't have as large of an audience as some of the other ones of his, Gravity's Rainbow, comes to mind. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? A uh, favorite book of all time or a favorite Pinchon? Pinchon. I do indeed. Why don't we save that for the top 10 list later? Done. Okay. Keep that as a mystery. Mm-hmm. Where should people start with him? Um, Lot 49 generally is where I say. It is relatively short. It gives you a pretty good entry point into his concerns with paranoia and systemic bodies working in the background, sort of shadow forces, um, interesting, quirky characters, plot mechanics that sometimes lead places, sometimes lead nowhere. It's just like a really good primer in a pretty economical page count. Um, so that tends to be where I recommend people to go. And conversely to that, I also recommend they don't start with Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a hard start, I think, if you start with Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, if you I, haven't read him before, it's a recipe for failure just because it's him operating, it's him vibrating at the highest frequency. Yeah. Um, and it just gets so weird and so abstract at times and it completely disintegrates on itself by the end. And I just think for people who aren't coming in with a little more context as to what he's up to narratively, thematically, uh, even on a prose level, they'll probably just end up going, what the hell was that? You know, <laughs> if they make it to the end. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are easier starting points. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, Crying of Lot 49 is, a, is just a perfect starting point because it's short, but it does get you into his rhythm and into his universe. And I yeah, think absolutely. if you started with something like um, Inherent Vice, I think it doesn't quite open the world of his universe as well as crying of lot 49 so it's maybe a little more contained in its scope but i actually think that inherent vice is underappreciated and um really really taps into some of the anxieties between the countercultural movement and the um 
you know, the police forces and whatnot at the time. Uh, that's always been his concern, though, right? The rhetoric versus the elect, the insiders versus the outsiders, et cetera. It's another theme you'll see in pretty much every one of his books. But I think Inherent Vice probably should get a little more credit than it does. But anyway. I reread it, I think, late last year now. And um, I just loved it. I, I I think I loved it more the second time around. And it it really does... I don't know, it's, it's entertaining and it's different, but it just beats the crap out of so much of the fiction that is out there at the moment. Well, just Doc Sportello, how do you hate that guy? He's just yeah. such a good time. But it's even the little things in that book. You know, uh, there's something that's kind of held up as a throwaway line. Uh, they're in the car, group of them and Doc at one point, and they're pulled over by a cop and they ask why they're being pulled over. And the cop says, um, oh, we have this new rule where we're detaining any group over three people under the suspicion that it will be a cult, which is like, ah, uh, that's pretty funny. But that was actually right after the Manson murders, mm. a law that was being proposed to be able to detain any people in groups of, I think it was three or more under the suspicion that it could be cult-like activity it i don't think it ever went through but i just it's those little things where he makes these little lines and references that seem like throwaways but oftentimes they are based in some sort of historical reality and i think that's quite clever and it gives you a lot to mine later on if you know you want to read into all the extra textual stuff your youtube channel so you started that pretty recently you've done michael cisco's animal money and you've done melancholy of resistance by krasner harkai um, and I assume by the time that this gets out, you'll have done a few more. But what was your idea starting that? And um, let's talk about those two books as well. Sure. Um, look, the, if I'm honest, there was no idea. The YouTube channel really didn't arise out of any pre-planned conscious intention. I was reading The Melancholy of Resistance by Krasnohorkai, and I was just completely wired into it. And as I was going along, I was writing down a whole host of these sort of frenzied, half-formed thoughts. And when I had finished, I had this jumbled 15-page document of fragmented sentences and non-sequitur reactions. So in cleaning those notes up, I came to the realization that this isn't an essay. And even if it was, no one will read it. But it could be a video. So I continued to organize those notes and broke them down into the loose structure that became the chapters of the video. And the next thing I know, I was smuggling microphones and tripods home from the office and recording <laughs> while my partner was at work. Um, and I actually had a lot of fun doing it. And I realized, oh, maybe this is something that I'll enjoy. Um, I, I haven't trafficked heavily in the booktube space for a variety of reasons. But for the you know dozen or so channels that I do follow and admire, I follow them religiously. I, I think the three most formative influences of my content would be Chris Via on Leaf by Leaf, Cliff Sargent on Better Than Food, and Sam Pullum on Sherd's Tube. I think, I think my main issue with the booktube community at large is it's just dominated by top 10 lists and shelf tours and short form subjective reactions. It's no disrespect to people who enjoy that sort of thing. Of course, I completely understand the appeal, but that style of content is 
diametrically opposed to my personal motivation to read. And that's to completely and wholly immerse myself in a work of fiction. I want to explore everything from authorial intent to granular examinations of plot and theme. I want to offer some personal interpretations to the elements of the book left ambiguous as well. So kind of as the result of that, long-form content is where my interests lie. Uh, I know the YouTube algorithm favors 10 to 20-minute videos and top 10 lists, but for the time being, I'm comfortable letting my audience growth take a hit in favor of developing a sort of niche of my own. So you can expect sort of 30, 60, 90-minute videos to be the rule rather than the exception. I am considering a couple of ways to make it a more accommodating experience for viewers. Uh, so that may end up like looking like splitting each book up into multiple videos or maybe doing both a short and a long version of each video. I'm still kind of working on what that'll look like. Um, yeah, look, I, I want to do about one episode every month. I'm going to keep the bar for output fairly low for the time being just because I don't want to burn myself out while I'm still finding my footing. I have no experience on camera and none editing so it's a lot of googling and a lot of me figuring this out as I go along but it's a lot of fun. It's an interesting sort of way to offshoot off of Instagram which has its limitations of course 220 character 2200 character counts I should say and all. So yeah that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with it. Mm. Yeah, I think that the thing I've really enjoyed about your videos is they are quite in-depth and they do take, like especially Michael Sisko with Animal mm. Money is a book that I only heard about from from Ian Smith and I'd really not known anything about, but your video kind of confirmed that desire for me to go out and get that book immediately because you did read it in-depth and you did do a great job covering the book in your YouTube channel. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I really think if there is one intention behind the channel, I'm not really looking to establish myself as some sort of leading authority on these books. I really just want to get people excited about things that I don't think are being read enough. Um, and so, and I mentioned this in the second video as well, is Although it's not going to be super fringe, um, I'm not quite on the level of George Salas with Invisible Books, like he reads some stuff that's out there. But reasonably niche novels will be the rule rather than the exception kind of thing. Um, and I just want to get people excited about things that I enjoyed. And also when I'm reading books like that, something complex like Cisco or Melancholy was quite complex in and of itself, I really would have loved some videos to help me out with them. And so I guess it would be nice to know that if someone comes around to those books on their own terms and are looking for resources to maybe give them a little bit of orientation, even if it's subjective in my own interpretations, if it offers them something, if they feel like they understand it a little better, great. It's a success, you know? What are you looking at covering in the future? Oh boy. Um, well, I've, finished the book oh you know what i was gonna keep this like a, a secret but there's really no point um i'm working on a video of fat city by leonard gardner right now um i've got a pinch on adjacent book which i'm going to keep under wraps for the time being uh what else
else off the top of my head. I'm not thinking too far ahead in scheduling right now. Um, would like to do more translated works as well because I like focusing on the story of the translation when I can find information on that. And Chris Via recently did an enormous like three and a half hour video on Gravity's Rainbow that just kind of blew my mind because I had never seen anyone do that long form content on a book before. I would love to do something similar, um, not on Gravity's Rainbow, on something else, but that might be something I cook up over a longer period of time. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Seth from Waste Mailing List. This episode is brought to you by the Nicki Minaj biography, Wet Ass Pussy, ghostwritten by Joshua Cohen, comes with a free mop, available everywhere you get good books. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear about Seth's Gateway books. Uh, I wouldn't say these are the books that necessarily drew me into the online book community, but they are broadly representative of sort of three defining points in my life as a reader. Uh, so the first I have is a actually a young adult novel, um, House of the Scorpion by Nancy Farmer. So it's a YA speculative fiction book. I read it in the fifth grade. My relationship to it is less so about identification with the content of the work so much as it is my relationship to books in general. By that age, I was a bit of a reader already, and my primary school librarian, Mrs. Clarkson, wonderful woman, she picked this up or picked up that I was a reader and she started curating books for me. And I guess she must have seen a sci-fi fan in me at the time because I remember a lot of sci-fi books were what she was throwing at me. Uh, Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time, The Chrysalids by John Wyndham, those sorts of things. And it's interesting because despite these all being formative reads for me, I'm not much of a sci-fi consumer these days. Uh, anyway, she handed me a copy of House of the Scorpion, and I remember being quite taken aback by the content. It was quite shocking for me at that age, you know, I was still a young kid. It's based around that well-worn concept of cloning for the purposes of organ harvesting. And at the time, I just thought that was so subversive. Like, are you allowed to write about that? Fifth grade, remember. Uh, it was sort of my first exposure to the idea that you can write about dark, challenging concepts. And fiction is only limited by the constitution of the author. So reflecting on that now, it's probably a sizable influence on my taste for boundary pushing fiction. It was also the first book I owned that um, I read probably well over a dozen times. I lived in a rural suburb growing up and had a long commute to school. So a lot of my time spent reading as a kid was in the backseat of my parents' car. Um, I haven't touched that book in probably about a decade or so, but even speaking about it briefly now makes me want to revisit it. So that's the first one. Uh, second one I'll mention is Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life by William Finnegan. So this will be one of the few nonfiction books I'll mention here. That's not for lack of interest in nonfiction. I actually read and listen to quite a bit of it. 
but more so just because past discussion on this show mainly pertains to fiction and literature. So I'll keep it within the scope of kind of the trends going on here. But I came across this book via the uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest podcast, which, quick plug, no affiliation, I recommend is one of the best pop culture discussion shows currently in circulation. And I picked up a copy in, I want to say, late 2016. And it was the first book I had read in a couple of months, maybe a year. And it's the biography by way of sports memoir, the New York columnist William Finnegan and his experiences surfing all over the globe. I think it's mentioned important for context that despite living on the Australian East Coast, I don't surf with any degree of regularity. So you might be thinking to yourself, I don't surf, why the hell would I want to read this? And yeah, at face value, it is a book about surfing. But more than that, it's just an incredible exploration into forging an identity for oneself amidst a culture of consumption and conformity. And it contains some of the most cutting meditations on what it means to be human, which I've read in both fiction and nonfiction. For my money, it's probably the best memoir I've read. I've included it as a gateway read because it's the books, or the book, I should say, that catalyzed what I semi-jokingly refer to as my reading renaissance. I read all throughout primary school and high school, but in my undergrad, like I said, I nearly stopped dead, just so bogged down with studying and working that I had forgotten how much joy I derived from reading and lost the habit. And so returning to this book is actually what got me back into reading. Um, so I've got it to thank for that. And the last gateway book I'll include here is a bit of a cliche for the show, but Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I'm not going to dwell too long on the content of this one because damn near every guest on this show has something to say about it, with good reason, of course. Uh, it's an indelible work of fiction that, for all its flaws, which are several, I'm talking to you, Wardine, uh, <laughs> it deserves every ounce of acclaim it's received. And my personal connection to reading it was I was in a point in my life when I was just starting to receive treatment for a handful of mental health challenges. And Wallace's preoccupations with the ideas of alienation, obsession, the way we use entertainment to distract ourselves from anxiety and trauma, it just dovetailed quite closely with what I was going through at the time. Beyond my sort of subjective emotional attachment to the work, I'm fascinated by what I might call the structural conceit of the book. I know Wallace claimed to have intended to write a work that resembled something called a Sierpinski gasket. I've read about that ad nauseum in Greg Carlyle's companion book, Elegant Complexity. I think it's a bit of a reach, and I don't really think that contributes anything to the book beyond, oh, that's neat. Uh, the aspect of the structure I'm interested in is that bold and uncommercial decision to effectively end the novel in the middle of its story and leave the majority of the plot points that are material to its climax outside the boundaries of the written page. All the events that would have offered some sense of closure or satisfaction occur in that liminal space between the year of the dependent adult undergarment and the year of glad. And you're forced as the reader to infer what happened as the novel circles back on itself. 
it's a brave and uncompromising position to take. And it's just kept me thinking about what actually happened in it for years. But um, the main reason I listed it as a gateway book is it taught me to no longer fear big and quote unquote challenging novels. I don't believe, and I will argue with anyone who says otherwise, that those of us who choose to read serious fiction, in quotes, are somehow clever or smarter than those who read conventional or popular fiction. That's bullshit. All you really need to enjoy and absorb these sorts of works is bit of patience and I guess a degree of trust that the author will reward you for investing time in their work. So if anyone's got that big book on their shelf, uh, give it a go. See what happens. You know, be patient. The Internet's a fantastic resource for us. It's we've got it a lot easier than past generations. So these books aren't necessarily a reflection of my taste as a reader right now, but they all closely kind of inform my relationships to books now. I got a bunch more in mind, but let's not turn this into a three-hour masturbatory recollection of everything I've ever read. Just check my Goodreads. Let's talk about the books you're currently reading and recently enjoyed. <laughs> sure thing. Uh, so let's talk about the sort of big year-long project. I'm reading Anniversaries, A Year in the Life of Gazine Crestball by Uwe Johnson, translated by Damien Searles. So it's the story of a German immigrant, Chris, uh, Gesine Crestball living in New York City in the late 60s. It's told over the course of a year in kind of a serialized format. The novel begins on August 21st, 1967, and contains 365 chapters or entries. And I'm a little bit loose with my use of the word entries because it's not exactly a straight-ahead diary format. Johnson's written this decidedly non-linear story kind of vacillates between various characters and time periods. The framing device is set in 1960s New York, but most of the narrative action takes place in the memories of Gesine Crestball as she recounts her life in Northern Germany in the 30s. And Johnson is playing directly into this idea of history as a subjective construction. He creates this almost fractal mosaic image of a personal history, a country's history, a history as it's told by the news and media. He does this through these constant insertions of the New York Times, which features quite prominently. It's almost a character in the book. Uh, most of the chapters start with a real New York Times headline as it occurred on that day of the year. And New York City is also written with just such an incredible depth in the book. It's just so live with texture and ambience. You could definitely see a character in that as well. Anyway, the book is massive. It's like 1,800 pages over two volumes. And so the way I decided to approach it was a serialized reading of it. So I read one entry each day. So I started on August 21st last year. We're on February 25th today, and I plan to be done in August. For future readers, I actually advised advise against this. I don't think it's the greatest way to immerse yourself in the book. And I've had to reorient myself a number of times because, you know, only reading a small chunk and not getting into deep reading mode and then coming back to it, you know, the next day has hampered my immersion in it a little bit. But um, it's still been an interesting experience and the book's wonderful. So highly recommended. The only other thing I'm actively reading at this moment 
is a group read of none other than the Brothers Karamazov by, obviously, Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm reading the translation by Richard Pivier and Larissa Volokonsky. That was advised by a handful of well-seasoned Dostoevsky readers uh, that I know. Shout out to Stephanie Weber and Shelby Polk, if you're listening. P and V seem to be kind of the gold standard for Dostoevsky's work. Um, so I figured it'd be a good basis point from which to approach the Brothers K. The group discussion for that's being held largely on Discord and Instagram. So if it's something you're interested in joining, it's still fairly fresh. Get in touch with myself or Julie Michelle Reads on Instagram. She's great, by the way. She's currently reading The Tunnel by William H. Gass. And I got to say, I don't envy her. I am glad to have that book behind me. I know I will come back to it, but um, even months after finishing it, I have no idea what to do with it in my brain. <laughs> so uh, it's just two books for me right now. Uh, let me ask you this, Ben. What are you reading right now? Okay, that's a loaded question because oh, there's yes. quite a few things on the cards at the moment. Okay, so Give me a couple. Emily Hall's The Long Cut, Mark De Silva's The Logos, which is amazing. Oh, okay. So that is on my looking forward to. I don't know much about it other than the fact that it's kind of a buzzy new maximalist book. And Mark De Silva is just a super nice guy on Twitter as well. So I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I'm here for it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. It is um, basically it's. It's kind of like the best way I can describe it is the recognitions uh, crossed with Mad Men. So, oh, fuck. So sold. You've so, literally got one of my favorite books in one of my favorite shows. Holy <laughs> shit. I am so here for it. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, and I'm about 400 pages in of a, I think it's about a thousand pages. So fantastic, wow. fantastic book. I'm reading the, Biography of Ezra Mass by Daniel James. I've heard about this as well. I think I've seen that mentioned on book Twitter as well. Yeah, Enjoyable. Uh, that is coming out as a re-release in April, I think. Okay. It is probably the most Pynchon-esque book that I've read in a long time. Doomtown by Gabriel Blackwell coming up. Yeah, I think that's about it for the moment. I'm also reading a fantastic biography of D.H. Lawrence called Burning Man, which is like truly unbelievable. It's just a such a good biography. It's uh, just, I don't know, it feels like it should be fiction, but yeah, it's biography. It's great. With a day job, a family, and a podcast of your own, I'm amazed you have that much time for it. I barely have time for the two that I'm working on right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually quite a, I only gave you the short list. <laughs> that's the short list. Oh, yeah. good God, you're a madman. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I haven't covered what I'm looking forward to. No, let's hear. All right. Um, well, really, what am I not looking forward to at this stage? How much time you got? Look, let's limit to a few here. Uh, first one I'll offer is less so a specific book, but rather an author. And that is none other than William Tanner Volman or Billy mm. TV, as I've heard him called a few times. How I managed to hit damn near 30 years old without reading Volman is a mystery to me. He first jumped on my radar by way of Ryan over on Republic of Bad Taste. I know you're well aware of him because you had him on just a few months ago. Great episode, by the way. And uh, Ryan's been championing Volman's work for the past year or so, and that's planted this sort of ever-growing seed of interest in my mind. 
And um, Ryan and his co-host Jordan just released their inaugural episode of the Volmania podcast. And that just basically turned a casual interest into an immediate excitement. So I was initially planning on starting with one of the Seven Dreams books, but I actually just purchased a copy of You, Bright, and Risen Angels, which I understand is also going to be their next episode. So I think that's where I'll start. Um, but just yesterday, gorgeous first edition of um, Fathers and Crows just arrived, and I was flipping through it last night, and I was like, oh, this is going to be something I'm going to love. I got to say, though, he is frustratingly difficult to track down in Australia. Have, have you read Volman? Yes, and I completely agree that he's frustratingly difficult to track down in Australia. Um, I've got Brighton Risen Angels on my shelf. I've mm-hmm. got a few of his other works. I've got uh, The Royal Family, um, which I recommend highly. It's a it's massive on my one. List. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the book that they mentioned on their inaugural episode uh, about his CIA novel, which sounds unbelievable so oh is that table for fortune yeah so yeah, I, i've heard I'm, about this so that is seriously on my list of things to track down next i think that that may be my next volume and i think i might wait for it because um i've read quite a few yeah i haven't read yeah i haven't read afghanistan picture show but um yeah and i think i'm really looking forward to reading something new by him and almost start over with him because i feel like uh the, I don't know, this podcast has given me a lot of uh, impetus to restart. So thanks to Ryan. And yeah, I'm looking forward to, to reading more Volman. Yeah, shout out to them. That that first episode was fantastic, like mm. wildly exceeded my expectations. Um, and it's just going to be a fantastic companion to work through Volman's uh, back catalog because I've read nothing by him so far. So. The uh, second novel that I'm just desperately excited for is Sean Cotter's first English translation of Solenoid by Mircea Cartarescu. It's being published by Deep Vellum later this year. Are you laughing because you saw my tweet the other day? No, I'm laughing because I'm so desperate to read it. Yeah, okay, gotcha. (laughs) Um, Did you happen to see what I tweeted? Yes, I did. (laughs) Yeah, I literally did get in touch with them. this doesn't make good audio. Let me. So um, I tweeted at Deep Bellum. I was like, hey, guys, I had a dream that Sean Cotter gave me an early copy of Solenoid. Uh, you reckon that's enough to get me an arc? Which is true, by the way. I did have that dream. Uh, and they said yes. And now I've been talking to them about getting it over here to me once it's finished. Uh, Sean's just putting the finishing touches on it right now. Uh, I, I heard about this one a while back when it was posted on the Untranslated blog. Um, Andre there heralded it as one of the greatest, sorry, the greatest surrealist novel ever written, and one of the four great 21st century works examining the fourth dimension, among which he included Alan Moore's Jerusalem and Pinchon's Against the Day, both of which I haven't read yet, so. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Amazing that I haven't read Against the Day yet. It's going (laughs) to be, you know what it is? It's going to be my very last pinch on after I finish um, Slow Learner. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to end on a high note. So, but I guess what draws me to Solenoid is just surrealism is one of the aesthetic and I would argue emotional qualities that just instantly draws me into a work. 
maybe it's a byproduct of my overactive imagination. Maybe it just appeals to the visual way in which my mind works. I don't really know, but surrealist fiction is what I'm interested in reading and interested in writing. And um, I've actually read the first few pages. Walker over at Deep Vellum sent me a bit of what they have so far. And it's stunning. It's so good. I just read the first short chapter and I'm just like, I don't know what this is. And I know it's going to be absolutely incredible. So in the lead up to Solenoid, I'm going to carve out time to read um, Blinding the Left Wing, which was also translated by Sean Cotter. That's that first entry into his Orbiter trilogy. Um, I think Blinding the Left Wing is the only one that's been translated in the, of those three so far, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so that's kind of my literary event of the year. So without dwelling too long on any single book beyond that, I'll throw out a couple more I'm interested in. Um, I'm long overdue to read A Journey to the End of the Night by Louis Ferdinand Celine. Uh, I've got the translation by Ralph Mannheim from New Directions. I've always had this morbid fascination and attraction to brilliant works of art that are created by terrible people. Uh, another that immediately springs to mind are the operas of Richard Wagner. And Journey is often heralded as one of the greatest misanthropic society critiquing polemics out there. And so I'm excited to give that a go. Plus, Volman penned the afterword, which just starts with the sentence, reader, fuck you. <laughs> How can I resist that? Seriously. <laughs> Um, Audley Molzett, who translated Baron Vankamp's Homecoming, is currently working on the English translation of Krasna Horkai's new Brick, Hirscht 07769. All I know at this stage is it's around 500 pages. It's set in contemporary Germany, and it's concerned with neo-Nazis, quantum physics, and in classic Krasna Horkai fashion, the apocalypse. I also read in one review that it might be structured in that same single sentence format he did for The Last Wolf, but don't quote me on that. Regardless, he's got carte blanche with me. I'll read anything he releases on name alone. Um, let's see what else. John Darnielle just recently released a new book, Devil House, which I'm quite excited for. Uh, let's keep the New Directions train going here. I picked up the second edition of Helen DeWitt's The Last Samurai as well as Melina by Ingborg Bachman, Ingborg Bachman rather. Uh, that's translated by Philip Bohm, and both of those I'm long overdue to read. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this last one. A uh, mate of mine very generously gift me, gifted me the complete works of Primo Levi box set. It's compiled by Anne Goldstein and translated by a number of different folks. And after I finish anniversaries, I can only handle one massive work of World War II era translated works at once. I'd like to get stuck into that. So to Pete, if you're listening, thank you so much. It's an amazing gift. That's kind of everything I'm looking forward to at this stage. Well, some of the things I'm looking forward to. Are you working on any writing projects at the moment? Uh, the short answer is yes. I think... I think it was either Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett who once said, writing is just reading to the point of overflow. And that's basically where I'm at at this stage. I've battled with stop and go attempts to write fiction at various points over the past decade or so. 
most of it never really make it past the early stages of putting words on page. And that's just due to a lack of discipline on my part. But um, let's not fixate on the failures. In the past six months or so, I've been slowly chipping away at something that falls somewhere between a short story and a novella. <clears throat> I think it could be described best as surrealist autofiction. There's still a chasm between what it is and what I want it to be particularly in how the rising action feeds into its climax. I use that word loosely. It doesn't really have a climax, but I suspect I'll have something of a finished product sometime this year. It's a very sensory focused work. It doesn't resemble much of what I've been reading in recent years. I don't even know what it is exactly, only that it's something that I want to get out of my head and move on from. I found writing fiction to be exceedingly frustrating but also rewarding insofar as it's heightened my appreciation for authors who managed to see through these massive monumental works of, you know, breathtaking scope through to the conclusion. And here I am struggling to tinker with like 50 pages. So it's given me some perspective and reverence for the difficulty that's implicit in writing fiction. Uh, when I do finish it, I don't know if I'll submit it anywhere, share it, or just tuck it away in a sock drawer to collect dust. Suffice it to say that creative impulse to create my own fiction is ever present and it does nod me, but it's going to take an incredible amount of practice and discipline for me to reach a point where I could ever in good conscience call myself a writer. So in the meantime, I'll just continue to jabber on about books I admire on my various social feeds. Do you have some bucket list books? Yes, uh, most definitely. I've got a few in mind sort of i've narrowed it down to kind of five i'd like sort of big intimidating books that i am definitively scared of and have access to i actually own almost all of these already but i'm just like i'm so scared to get into them so uh anatomy of melancholy by robert burton that thing's huge and just like i've opened it up once and it's incredibly dense uh women and men by joseph mcelroy I think I can handle that. It's just more the length that is imposing to me um, and the fact that I hear it's a bit all over the shop. Uh, the Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil. That's one I'd like to get to eventually. Um, In Search of Lost Time by Proust, obviously. That's just, again, that's just a length thing. I'm not ready to commit to, you know, 3,000 whatever pages at this stage. And kind of my number one white whale book that I'm most scared of is Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. I've never made it past the first page. Like as soon as you hit that first hundred letter word, I know it's supposed to represent thunder, but I'm just like, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> I'm going to need every reader's guide possible to make it through that. And I just know it's going to take ages, but I do want to read it at some point because the story sounds interesting to me. Do you have a blind spot book? <laughs> do a blind So books I should have read by now. I've got yeah. so many books I should have read by now. Um, Ulysses by James Joyce, but I will be correcting that in June because there's a group read of it. Uh, the Brothers Karamazov, I'm reading it right now, but I'm amazed that it's taken me this long to read it right now. Uh, the Pale King by Wallace. It's one of the ones of his I haven't read yet, and it's one that I've been interested in, but I just haven't gotten around to. War and Peace by Tolstoy, Count of Monte Cristo by Dumas, Don Quixote by Cervantes, and probably Dead Souls by Gogol. Um, those are kind of 
a group of pretty seminal works that I feel like I should have read by now, but haven't. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Seth's Top 10. This episode is brought to you by the reanimated corpse of Vladimir Lenin and the United Soviet Republic. Coming soon. Dosvedanya! We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Seth's Top 10. So, for the purposes of the Top 10 list, I'm going to limit myself to fiction only. It better fits the scope of our conversation today. Um, and I mention this only because there are a number of nonfiction books I count among my favorites of all time. But we'll save that for a different day. I think it's also important to note that my quote-unquote top 10 list is constantly in flux. Uh, the books, as I'll describe them today, aren't the same as they were five years ago, and they probably won't look the same five years in the future, with the exception of a few gold standards. I'll also note that neither Gravity's Rainbow nor Infinite Jest will be making an appearance on this list. That's not for lack of love of them. They're two of my favorites, but since we covered Jest in the Gateway books, and I've discussed Gravity's Rainbow ad nauseum over on Chatting Lit, I'm not going to devote any more time to them for now. So I'll list these in descending order, but it's pretty arbitrary in terms of the ordering, with the exception of number one, which is most definitely my all-time favorite novel. So number 10 is I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. I get this impression that across the mediums of both literature and film, horror has been sidelined as somehow unliterary, pulpy, cheap entertainment. And that novel is a picturesque example of how that could not be more untrue. So it's a road trip book about a man named Jake and his unnamed girlfriend and her interior monologue continues to impinge on the narrative flow to remind us that she's thinking of ending things. And their trip is interrupted by a variety of pit stops and detours until the solidity of the environment and the characters themselves begin to dissolve and a sort of new and ambiguous understanding of what is actually going on here begins to emerge. Reed's a minimalist writer, kind of in the vein of Saunders, excuse me, short story work, but darker. Um, to complement that sparseness in his writing, he's got this precise, intentional use of language where every word feels essential to creating an atmosphere. And that atmosphere is where he really shines. When I discuss this novel with people, I often hear them say something to the effect of, I found it super unsettling, but I don't really know why. And I still haven't entirely put my finger on why myself. I think uh, the choice to render his narrator ambiguous assists in this discomfort by destabilizing the reader's perspective. In another way, it kind of draws to mind the Johnny Truant narrative in Daniel Lewski's House of Leaves. You know, that seething, crawling sense of dread that's never embodied in a clearly visual matter, but it's kind of left to slither around in the spaces between words. Uh, suffice it to say, it's a masterclass in domestic surreal horror, and probably the closest thing I've ever read to a David Lynch film. So number nine is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. 
Frankenstein was kind of my gateway drug into appreciating the classics. But even more than that, it really helped me to realize that pop culture can strip away the essence of a source material and reduce it down to a caricatured piece of iconography. Those who haven't read Frankenstein are probably familiar with some bastardized image of a big green golem with screws sticking out of its head and some bespectacled man in a lab coat howling, it's alive, you know? Uh, that couldn't be further from the reality of the book, though. Frankenstein's not a horror novel. Not really. It's a few things. Uh, describe it as an examination of hubris, the tortures of accepting personal responsibility, finding a sense of belonging when one is alienated from the rest of the world. Maybe a character study would be the best classification for it, but like I said before, these categorizations and genre taxonomies aren't particularly useful when it comes to critically reflecting on a piece of work. The novel's framed within an Arctic expedition, and that's setting that bookends both the kind of entry and exit nodes of the story. This might be my Canadian showing here, but I've always been fascinated and sort of intimidated by the cold. It sounds strange, I know. You'd think I'd be used to it by now, but I've never really grown used to cold weather. And the sense imagery from the Arctic ice and this wretch, as he's referred to in the novel, emerging and conversely returning back into the blizzards of the Arctic night is just something that stuck with me ever since reading it in high school. I think it's incredible what Shelley did with such economy, and I've loved it ever since. So number eight is a controversial one. It's The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. There's a part of me that wishes I didn't love this book as much as I do. I feel like my relationship to it has been mostly reduced to a continual defense of it. It's not a particularly well-regarded novel. Do you remember when Crash won the Oscars? It's basically the literary equivalent to that. And people have called it the most undeserving Pulitzer Prize ever awarded. I think there's a degree of truth to the criticism launched at it. It's over 800 pages long, but it's not really about anything. Its protagonist, Theo, is pretty inert. The story kind of just happens to him more than he affects the progression of the story. And it ultimately falls short of its highbrow attempts to make some sweeping statements about the preservation of aesthetic pleasures or something to that effect. But in saying that, I feel as though Tart really distilled both the anxieties and the aimlessness of youth, which I just deeply connected with on a personal level. In its most reductive sense, it's a book about trying to grow up and simultaneously piece together a life which was torn apart before the narrator ever got a chance to feel what normal really is. And while I don't subscribe to Oprah's book club model of identification being a necessary precursor to one's enjoyment of a book, I do believe in a way that I relate to Theo as he came of age, and that was integral to my enjoyment of it. I grew up in a rural part of BC where kind of the emptiness of an unoccupied suburb and, you know, the company of my best friend was pretty much all I had to keep me busy on the weekends. And at least until high school, you know, when casual jobs and whatnot came into the picture. So that Las Vegas sequence, which tends to be the most common way station of abandonment for readers, was actually one of my favorite segments. 
and it reminded me so closely of what it was like before responsibility became an element of my sort of day-to-day life. I'm also of the controversial opinion that it's a much stronger novel than The Secret History. Come at me, Donna Tartstans. Um, I don't spend a lot of time recommending this book to people, but I will say if that Dickensian slice of life type of story appeals to you, it's probably worth your time. So, number seven is Shut and Tango by Laszlo Kresnohorkai, translated by George Surtees. I'm not going to devote too much time to Kresnohorkai here because I give him quite a lengthy treatment in my video on the melancholy of resistance. And in saying that, I actually think that Melancholy will probably supersede Shot and Tango as my favorite by him. But I don't want recency bias to color my judgment here, so I'm going to give it a bit more time before I say that with any confidence. When I first heard about this book, uh, it was on the books of sub, sub, some substance. Jeez, I can't speak at this hour. Books of some substance podcast, and I was immediately intrigued by this dense, word-drunk Hungarian. He was said to write some incredibly dark and demanding books. So I picked it up and I finished it in record time and then asked myself, what the hell did I just read? And so I actually just immediately started it again and read it twice. Look, my priority when it comes to literature has and always will be excellence in the quality of writing. No amount of intriguing plot or characters can salvage bad prose, but conversely, Good prose can absolutely make up for dull or non-existent plot. Sam over on Sherdstube did a video a little while back on what he called the tyranny of plot, I think he called it, uh, in which he makes a case against the need for plot and allowing the space for writing to take center stage. And that's where I think Kresna Horkai operates most strongly. Uh, now to call his novels plotless would be to do him a major disservice because there's a lot of work being done with respect to historical allegory, thematic resonance, and the development of characters as both figures of messianic proportions, but also just simple common folk. And yet, for all that substantive density, his plots are really quite simple. Shot and Tango is really just about a group of impoverished Hungarians waiting for their savior to arrive. Yes, you're spot on if this is bringing Beckett to mind. Uh, melancholy is really just about riding in a town after a circus arrives. Simple plots, but incredible depth in every other aspect. I think the main thing that drew me into his work is the quality of the prose. He's one of the few living authors who I think can hold his own against Pinchon. He writes these gorgeous, baroque, serpentine sentences that extend for pages at a time. It's just exquisite. He's uh, infamous for margin-to-margin -margin paragraphs that don't break for chapters at a time. Surtees, his, <clears throat> his translator, referred to it as a slow lava flow of narrative, a vast black river of type. And that's just incredibly spot on. Um, so, look, Shantangos' first novel, which he claims is the foundation upon which he formed everything else he wrote. So if you've got an interest in him, that's kind of a good place to start. Number six is The Burrow by Franz Kafka, translated by Michael Hoffman. As a decidedly non-academic, there's not going to be much I can say about Kafka that hasn't already been said. 
I think when we evoke his name nowadays, the titles that reflexively spring to mind are his longer works, The Trial, The Castle, The Metamorphosis, etc. And I don't want to discount these. They're all seminal entries in his catalog and the broader literary world, of course. But I am of the opinion that the soul of his work, thematically, intellectually, aesthetically, is really found in his short stories, his letters, his aphorisms. And his short story work just never ceases to amaze me with how much he manages to pack into such an economical length. Look at something like Poseidon. That's a three-page story that instantly digs into the concept of cages of our own design. That's a pervasive theme you'll find all throughout his work. This is an author who wastes no time bullshitting around and he just drives immediately to what preoccupies him. And when I'm recommending his short stories to people, I tend to recommend people start with The Hunger Artist. I think that pretty effectively digs into his interests with asceticism, isolation, stoic regard for one's personal values, even if it is at the expense of rationality. And even more than that, I think it's an excellent showcase of his talents as a satirist, although some of that humor can be lost depending which translation you read. But my personal favorite work of his would have to be The Burrow. It's about 40 pages long and it's told from the perspective of a small mammal as it tries to fortify its little underground home, the titular burrow. And within the world of the burrow, one of the central concerns is an existential fear of predators that may or may not actually be there. And without a means to resolve that terror, the creature begins to take every precaution and measure necessary to insulate himself from the inimical outer world. And as is the case with most of Kafka's output, it's kind of a psychological allegory for the ways in which we build fortresses in our mind that protect us against fears and terrors. Uh, and I talked about this earlier. I, to be personal about it, I, I've been in treatment for some mental health issues that kind of sit on the anxiety, depression spectrum. And one of the primary ways that my particular condition expresses itself within the mind is a desperate, panicky need for certainty or closure. And that generally can't be offered. And it's a quality that I feel, at least in my reading of it, that's not dissimilar from the burrow. And that's why it resonated so closely with me. These sort of internal demons of psychic provenance proved to be just incredibly affecting forces in the world of the borough. And Kafka conveys this with just wonderful subtlety. It, he wrote it in the months leading up to his death, so it is an unfinished product, but I think it ends on a note of finality that does feel satisfactory for what it is. So number five is In Watermelon Sugar by Richard Brodigan. So Brodigan's life is a sad story. And I think it's at times been reduced to his alcoholism and his suicide. Make no mistake, he was a proper trip to Echo Spring alcoholic, but his work was so much more substantive than just drunken ramblings of a guy too far gone. So when I sat down to consider which of his novels were my favorite, I struggled between In Watermelon Sugar, Trout Fishing in America, and A Confederate General in Big Sur. And I ended up going with Watermelon Sugar simply because it's the one I think about most often. The novel, or novella technically, focuses on a commune of people that have gathered together in the wake of a vague and indeterminate apocalypse. And in it, he 
depicts the struggles of this unnamed narrator as he battles psychological demons and physically invading threats. My understanding is he drew from his experiences living with an insular commune in the California Bellina Mountains, I think they're called. Anyway, uh, I've always struggled to articulate what draws me so strongly to Brodigan's work. Never really found a concrete way to communicate it. It's just that nobody writes like him. Nobody. Not that I've read. He's integrated some of the surrealist lilts you might find in sort of Vonnegut. And he's got that clipped, no frills prose of the beat contemporaries. He, I don't really consider him a beat, but he was in that era. Um, and he's also got that sense of alienation, which you might find in Conrad and sort of Heart of Darkness or Nostromo. And yet in making all these comparisons, he's not like any one of them on an individual level. I don't know what it was in his mind that compelled him to write the way he does. To blame it on the alcohol, I think, would be unfair. I, I think his creative inclinations predated his addictions. His writing is just so otherworldly, so strange, and it just doesn't conform to any pre-existing notions I had about how a novel or even a sentence or a paragraph should be structured. I don't often recommend him to people because his work is weird, <laughs> to say the least, but I will say this. If you want to read a voice that's unlike anyone else you've read, give Brodigan a shot. Uh, start with Trout Fishing in America. You'll get a good taste of his prose, his interests, his relationship to substances, and his home in the Pacific Northwest, from which I also hail. I view him as this weird melting pot of a lot of different things, but um, he's fascinating. I just picked up a copy of The Abortion, a historical romance recently, and that's on my to-do list as well. So he's incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, number four is Hard Rain Falling by Don Carpenter. Another Pacific Northwest story might be coming predictable. <laughs> uh, I consider this basically the prison novel of the 20th century, rivaled maybe only by Henry Caillet's um, Papillon, I think it's called. Uh, anyway, this is set in 1940s Portland, and it tracks through to San Francisco in the 50s. And in it, Carpenter explores the lives of these two hypermasculine wayfarers, I might call them, and their lives kind of careen off of one each, one another over the course of their lives, tenderly, violently. And those lives kind of end in a place of tragedy and melancholy. And at its core, it's really a potent investigation on forging a masculine identity, which in the 50s was just diametrically opposed to queerness as it was understood at the time. And Carpenter just lends such care and sensitivity to the exploration of male emotion and gay relationships, but he still frames it within this tough as nails, brutal urban setting. I'd characterize him as kind of a halfway point between Bukowski's no bullshit rough edge and John Williams' literary gentleness. He's got this way of balancing kind of the filthy, wretched parts of the human soul with a forlornness and kind of a longing, a sense of emotional isolation. I've often referred to it as a litmus test for the depth of a reader's empathy because it will test you. It's not quite a feel-bad novel like some of the other prominent failure-focused works it's associated with. Leonard Gardner's Fat City comes to mind. But if nothing else, hard rain falling will show you what the phrase at the end of your rope really means. So number three 
is Story of the Eye by George Betai, translated by Joaquim Negrishel. I don't think you can really sit halfway with this one. You either love it or hate it. Um, the story is centered around a pair of teenage lovers, the unnamed narrator and his love interest, Marcel, as they engage in these increasingly extreme sexual behavior. And it kind of culminates in this sublime moment of pure hedonism. And for all its psychosexual machinations, I view Story of the Eye as mainly an exploration of obsession, this sort of no holds, no holds barred assault on social permissiveness. In the book, Bataille has kind of stripped away all the gigas and frills that we normally associate or consider essential or material to a story. And in its place, we're kind of just given this threadbare erotic descent into madness. And the substance of that descent isn't in the body, but it's kind of in the mind of the narrator. That's where it gets really fascinating. That's kind of where Bataille exposes vulnerability. He offers himself up as the blueprint for the story, and he does so in that final section. I think it's called Coincidences. It's sort of towing the line between autofiction and psychological study, although I'm sure Bataille didn't go quite down as far the rabbit hole as Simone did. Uh, I think the broader Amy was going for was just to show us how our ideas of social acceptability are just flimsy constructions and we use it to disguise our own psychological baggage. It's a bizarre and upsetting story, but I'm probably not ever going to get it out of my head. Uh, I love it. I return to its depravity every few years. It's great. Have you read it? I have not read it. I know lots of people who have told me to read it. Courtney Gray has told me to read yeah. it, but... I haven't gotten to it's like that. 80 pages, mate. You'll sit, you'll get through it in a single sitting. It's, um, it's wild. You'll read some stuff you've never read before. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> perfect. Number two is The Recognitions by William Gaddis. Highly regarded, but seldom read. Uh, at the risk of sounding obnoxiously hyperbolic or spiritual, this book got under my skin and into my soul. I really don't think there's a week that's gone by since I've read it where I haven't caught myself thinking about it. Look, we could do an entire episode about it, so let's just cover a few points. Um, look, you know you're in for something significant when Pynchon himself cites Gaddis as an influence. This is, for my money, the strongest debut novel ever written, at least in English. And I think the origins of postmodernism, as it's conventionally understood in literature, can be traced back to this book. The basic premise of the novel is this psychological and in some readings physical disintegration of the artist Wyatt Guion as he makes a career out of art forgery. But there's just so much more to it beyond that. You could read this book 50 times and come away with 50 different conclusions. I think people get bogged down in the entropy of it all. You know, the seemingly endless party scenes, the chaotic, constantly interrupted, unattributed dialogue, the deep cut references to Mithraism and fringe religiosity. But if you take time to parse through all that noise, what you'll get is a profoundly moving meditation on authenticity and what it truly means to be a creator of something, be it art, literature, theater, poetry, so on. It, it's a spectacularly difficult but rewarding novel. And I do recommend it to anyone who's interested in a work that will fundamentally alter their relationship to art, broadly speaking. Well, at least it did for me. Um, you have read it, is my understanding. 
if we were doing a top 10 tonight, yep. it would be my number one book of all time. Oh, fantastic. That is exactly what I like to hear. It's just a brilliant piece of work. I am, I'm humming and hawing about already rereading it again this year um, because I'm not lying when I say it's in my head literally every week. I just can't. It doesn't go away. And I want to understand it at a greater depth than I did the first time. Uh, it's a brilliant piece of work. My all-time favorite novel is Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon. Yes. I, I mentioned this idea of history as a subjective construction up top when I spoke about anniversaries. And that's part of why I'm so attracted to Volman's work as well, is because I've been led to believe he traffics quite heavily in this idea. While I can't say Mason and Dixon is the greatest among them, having not read all the heavy hitters in this genre, what I can say with complete confidence is that it is one of the greatest and most complete historical fiction novels ever written. So much so that there's actually been an argument in the American academic communities to whether or not it should just be labeled as historical nonfiction. Um, most people can probably pick this up from the title, but the novel tracks the works of Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon in the years leading up to, during, and following the surveying of the Mason-Dixon demarcation line. To say it's just a novel about land surveying would be similar to reducing Moby Dick to a book about whaling or the recognitions to just a book about art, you know? Like most things in the quote-unquote postmodern canon, it's just got so many layers to it. One of the key ideas I think Pynchon's playing with here is that this myth of modern America is a constant tug of war between objective examination, mythologizing, embellishment, uh, at times downright fabrication. History is a story we tell ourselves and it will always change depending on who's talking and who's listening. And I think that's why he structured it as a frame narrative. The novel's being told Fire, it's essentially a story being told fireside to the LaSpark family by the Reverend Wicks Cherry Coke. Great name, by the way. Um, and throughout the book, we see Cherry Coke modifying his story based on who's in the room. And he gets interrupted periodically when one of his audience picks up on discrepancies in his story. You know, there are certain things in the book that he physically was not present for. So how could he recall that? And I think it's just a really clever way of confronting us with an understanding that history is malleable. It's a subjective recollection of events. Yet, in spite of that subjectivity, it's researched down to the most minute detail with respect to the specifics on how they went about drawing the line and the language used at the time. I mentioned earlier, uh, it uses this historical pastiche of kind of 17th century American English. Um, but it's also filled with all these fantastic elements. You've got talking dogs, giant golems, a hollow earth. Uh, it, he even takes real historical events like the controversy of the missing 11 days during the Gregorian challenger calendar changeover. It's hard to say. And he infuses these events with these surreal elements, like what would happen if we could travel to those missing 11 days? What would we find there? Pynchon's just second to none when it comes to taking real, real things, mutating them into something weird and fantastic, and then somehow always grounding it back into reality by the end. It's just an incredible novel, and I maintain it's Pynchon's best work. 
it can be challenging to wrap your head around, but there are a ton of resources out there to help you. Um, I helped with a crowdsourced Reddit group analysis of it last year. So if you want a blow by vote breakdown of it, check the pension subreddit. Uh, I contributed to the latitudes and departures section. So yeah, that's kind of my top 10 as it sits right now. But um, if you have me on in a year, it'll probably be a different looking list. Well, I, I really hope the top two don't change. Those two are in no danger of change. I, yeah. I think realistically probably top five are safe for the time being. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of the other five that I'm kind of like, mm, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> they're all wonderful though. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. And it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Can you tell us where we can find you uh, online and where we can catch up with your great videos? Absolutely. Um, so I am Waste Mailing List on YouTube, Waste in all capitals. I am Waste Mailing List on Instagram, where I post fairly regularly. And I'm Waste Mailing on Twitter. Uh, I also have a Substack, which is just Waste Mailing List as well. Um, probably not the best place to look for me right now because it's really that just serves as a place to put the transcripts for my videos. But anyway, yeah, all those places. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and we'll talk again very soon. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun, mate. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again to Seth from Waste Mailing List. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week.